This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and use the J. Scott promo code when signing up to receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. I'm your host, J. Scott. And I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Uh, We've got a great episode today with Brian Martin. And for those of you that don't know Brian Martin, he writes a gear column for Western Hunter Magazine. And he's written in other publications before He originally started out uh, owning Canadian Mountain Outfitters and ran that for many years, hunting all sorts of sheep and and bear and and all sorts of animals in Canada. And uh, he's kind of known as a gear junkie. And um, he, the last couple years, handful of years, he's been uh, hunting in Asia and he owns Asian uh, Mountain Outfitters. Uh, he focuses on Marco Polo, Ibex, Argali, Brown Bear, Tur, Wild Boar, Snow Sheep, and Roebuck. And uh, some of the adventures that Brian has gone on uh, are amazing. And you're, this is actually a three-part uh, series. There's going to be three episodes. I had uh, great conversations with Brian about all sorts of gear. And uh, it was so extensive that I broke it into three uh, three parts. So make sure you catch all three parts. Uh, check out his website at asianmountainoutfitters.com. He's got uh, videos on there, hunts that they offer, tons of field photos, and um, these uh, Marco Polo sheep and these Argalis uh, are unbelievable photos. But uh, Brian has a lot of experience uh, with um, just being out in the field, guiding hunters, hunting, you know, we talk about in these, uh, this series, we talk about, you know, rifles, rifle scopes, uh, shooting positions, making a rest, uh, backpacks, tents, boots, uh, base layers, uh, basically every gear, uh, thought that you have about, uh, uh, hunting, and um, it's going to be uh, very well received. I can already tell you. I just know that you guys are going to love these episodes. Uh, I also want to thank uh, GoHunt.com Insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that the December giveaway is over and five Insider members just won uh, five pairs of uh, Zeiss 10 by 42 conquest binoculars and uh, November they gave away 10 insiders one uh, Kuyu pack system with a total value of 4500 um, the month before was actually the October coos deer hunt giveaway and two insider members won a fully guided coos deer hunt with Dar Colburn and myself at Colburn and Scott Outfitters Uh, down in Sonora, Mexico, and about the time that this episode is airing, we will be taking the hunters uh, on that hunt, and hopefully we'll have a great hunt down in Sonora, Mexico. That had a a retail value of 
13,000. Not only did those hunters, uh, insider members, um, get the, the hunt paid for, uh, but they got a thousand dollar travel voucher as well. So go hunt really goes above and beyond with their, uh, insider, uh, giveaways in September, they gave away 15, uh, Sunto core black watches. August, they gave away 10, uh, Kuyu super down sleeping bags. In July, they gave away four tags in four weeks. They gave away elk, mule deer, and antelope tags. And then, of course, in June, they gave away a $22,500 doll sheep hunt. Uh, and uh, we had the, the winner, uh, uh, Mr. Blazer, on the podcast uh, back um, this summer. And uh, he had a great hunt. I uh, wanted to announce for GoHunt.com Insider uh, this January the uh, the the giveaway is 40 Insider members each will win a hundred dollar gift certificate for custom ammo of their choice from Double Tap Ammunition. So 40 winners, hundred dollar gift certificate each. Um, all you have to do is be an Insider member to win um they draw every month and um you know if you're an insider member your name's automatically in the hat every month so um you can go to gohunt.com and um click on uh the insider giveaways and it will give you all the terms and conditions uh of the uh, giveaway uh, if you're not already an insider member click on the blue join now button Use the J. Scott promo code and you'll get a $50 uh, Kuyu gift card. Guys, I also wanted to thank you for your support of my podcast. And this wouldn't be possible without the great support that you guys give me uh, and this podcast. And also the sponsors. Um, you know, this, this, uh, the time that I put into this uh, wouldn't be possible without you and wouldn't be possible without the sponsors. I'd like to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being the title sponsor from just about the beginning of the podcast. And uh, also like to thank uh, Wilderness Athlete, The Outdoorsman's Western Hunter and Elk Hunter Magazines, uh, Utah Hydro Hydrographics, and uh, PhoneScope. Uh, they have recently stepped up uh, to sponsor the podcast. And uh, I ask that you guys support these companies that are that are stepping forward to support this podcast that you love. And uh, I appreciate all the comments uh, and the great questions that I get at my email, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Keep them coming. And uh, you can follow along our adventures on my blog at jscottoutdoors.com, uh, colburnandscottoutfitters.com. Uh, also on Instagram, at jscottoutdoors, my associate, Dar Colburn, at Dar Colburn. And, um, of, of course, Facebook, J Scott Outdoors and YouTube channel, J Scott Outdoors. So guys, I wanted to say something about, uh, the additional sponsors that we have here, uh, on the podcast, uh, gohunt.com insider obviously is the title sponsor of this podcast. And you know about the $50 Kuyu gift card when you sign up for Insider. I wanted to remind you that anytime you're using the promo code J Scott, that it's all one word, uh, J Scott spelled out. Uh, it doesn't have it; just lowercase is fine. 
but in the case of like phonescope.com, use the jscott16 promo code, receive 10% discount on all purchases. In regards to uh, Utah Hydrographics, use jscott16, all one word, uh, promo code and receive up to a 10% discount. Uh, they have kind of a dollar volume. If it's over or under a certain amount, you can contact Utah Hydrographics about that. Uh, Wilderness Athlete is just the J. Scott, all one word, promo code. You receive 10% off any orders in January 2016. Uh, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter Magazine. If you go to uh, westernhunter.net forward slash and just type in J or J. Scott, um, you will uh, be able to enter your email to win a chance uh, at a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. Uh, and the Outdoorsman's uh, use the J. Scott promo code, once again, all one word, uh, until February 28th to receive 10% off on all Outdoorsman's packs and accessories. Uh, I really want to thank these sponsors for uh, giving you guys these discounts and these breaks and uh, appreciate you guys. Uh, if you have any questions ever uh, with any of these promo codes or um, if you uh, need anything from me, you can always email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com in regards to this. Thank you for your support. Let's get right into this three-part episode with uh, Brian Martin of uh, the, the uh, gear uh, editor for Western Hunter Magazine. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code until February 28th to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a real special guest. We have professional hunter Brian Martin who calls home in British Columbia, Canada uh, this is a guy that just travels all over the world. He's probably been around the world enough times to make Donald Trump uh, jealous. Uh, Brian, you're a wealth of knowledge. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Jay. I'm happy to be here talking with you today. Yeah, and uh, where have we f caught up with you today, Brian? I'm in uh, Canada. I am in actually Alberta today. I'm traveling at a hotel. I, I came over to here to do some year-end accounting business, and um, I'll be heading back to British Columbia today, and then heading to the United States to get ready for the first show, um, Dallas Safari Club, and for the January. That's awesome. Uh, Brian uh, owns and operates Canadian Mountain Outfitters and Asian Mountain Outfitters, and uh, Brian, you've been known for many, many years as uh, a, a gear uh, guru, um, and uh, you're always in the field. You've, you've uh, gone from hunting uh, stateside to hunting in Canada to now hunting all over the world. Uh, I'd like you to tell us about uh, your uh, start in hunting and some of your earliest hunting memories. Yeah, well, I grew up in Oregon on a, on a wheat farm uh, and cattle. Uh, ranch, but mainly we had dryland wheat, and we grew up hunting mule deer. 
and birds. We had it right out our back door. So since I was old enough to walk, I would go out with my dad and uncle and their friends and family. And so always hunting was the you know the favorite time of year. And, you know, bird season is a long season. So we could hunt chuckers and geese and pheasants when I was young. Um, and we, there's a lot of, we call them sage rats or Columbia ground squirrels. So since I was very young, I used to do a lot of hunting with of them. Um, you know, there's starlings and whatever else that are pigeons around the farm that you can shoot. So always get a lot of trigger time. But my dream is always the, the sheep hunting. And I read a lot of outdoor life magazines when I was a kid, uh, specifically like the Jack O'Connors, the, the Elton Gates. Uh, Dad had several of the um, the African books, like by John Hunter, had all the Peter Hathaway capstick books. Um, he, he kept all his outdoor life and field and stream tide magazines from since he was a kid. So I would used to go up into our big attic. It was a walk-up attic. And I'd sit there for hours. I had a pile on my right, or, and it was unread magazines. And on my left, the red magazines. And I would always read, like, this happened to me. I'd read everything. I was really interested in guns. And reloading, I've probably been reloading since I was about 10 years old. And, um, you know, dad was very good with giving me, you know, teaching me about guns. And I'd usually go out with a pellet gun when I was super young because it's safer than a 22 or a shotgun. And then from there, um, you know, started hunting um, elk when I, could go, when I could do that when I was 13 or 14 years old. Uh, we went on our first elk and I got a spike elk and that was exciting. These horses and packed into the the remote country of north northeast Oregon. Um, never hunted out of state until I was about, I want to say 20, I think, or 22. But I did go to British Columbia when I went to I went to school, uh, Oregon State University in Corvallis, and studied engineering. And I actually was accepted at another school that was strictly engineering back in Michigan. It was a very high end uh, private school, but they didn't allow you to leave. It was six months. It was three months work, three months uh, school, three months work, three months school, and I just it was an internship program with like a high end, high end companies like Hughes Aircraft, McDonnell Douglas, uh, General Motors, and I decided that would never allow me to go to Alaska or Canada and and work in the hunting business for a while to see if I like that because my mind was so much into hunting. Uh, we would travel to our football games, basketball games, and I would always have hunting magazines and. I would go to study groups in engineering school at OSU and I would show up with hunting magazines and I would read those for 30 minutes and everybody would get ahead of me and I'd have to cram and always be one of the last ones to leave because I was kind of an addict. And uh, so I decided I wanted to go to Canada, met somebody who uh, knew an outfitter in Canada uh, that was also originally from the U.S. So I went up there. Um, it was a company called Upper Stikeen River Adventures and I couldn't work up there, but I could go help and pack and everything. So I went up for two summers during my college years and spent about three months. The one year I actually took off the fall semester. And, uh, and that was when I, after I got done there, I went to Montana and did an antelope hunt. And um, then I ended up helping my uncle with Christmas tree farm <laughs> projects because uh, I didn't have anything to do for about a month there. And that's how it started. And then I decided I didn't really want to do my engineering program, but I finished anyway because I didn't want to quit. And I ended up getting a minor in business and, Ended up uh, doing some ranch real estate consulting work and helped outfitters in the lower 48, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana specifically, buy and sell their hunting territories. And it gave me a good way to really understand the, the mentality and the dealing with the outfitting industry from a business standpoint, selling it. Um, so it was very educational for me. And then I decided 
for sure the lower 48 was pretty mild and not very wild compared to British Columbia. So I decided I wanted to buy a hunting territory in Canada, either the Yukon, BC, or in Northwest Territories. And I worked on that project for about a year and a half until I bought one. Uh, one of my clients had and was uh, agreed to and loan me money and invest in it. I had to pay him back over a 10-year period. And so I bought an area in British Columbia in late, well, actually early 1999. And I moved to British Columbia in 2000. And I became a citizen, I don't know, six or seven years later. So now I have two um, two citizenships, two, passport, two passports, one for the U.S. and one for Canada. And while I was doing my Canadian operation in 2002, I decided that I wanted to uh, also hunt Asia. I'd always wanted to go chase the Marco Polo sheep and Ibex, and one of my clients had got back from there, and a local man that he hunted with said, hey, if you have anybody that wants to come over, we were short a few hunters this year, so I called uh, around a little bit, found a, a hunter that was adventuresome and crazy, worked out a really good price for him, and he and I went over in March. Uh, it was the season at that point went until March 31st, and we went over on the 20th of March, had some interesting travel situation with big snow and creeks and lakes that were frozen and thawing out and getting stuck all the time on the ice floes with the jeeps. And anyway, we got there, ended up seeing some huge Marco Polo, missed a really big one uh, on the last day due to some damage he'd had on his gun, and uh, finally killed one at the last night, the last hour of the day. Um, but we did see some really big ones, and so I was—I really enjoyed it. It had its own share of complications, of course, and uh, but it kind of added a little bit to my British Columbia operation. And I decided eventually I probably wanted to do that more than Canada, so I operated in British Columbia until 2010, and then uh, I looked at a Yukon area. A friend of mine looked at a Yukon area, and it basically ended the day when you penciled out the cost of the area, the cost of the improvements, the the airplanes that we needed to buy, you're looking at two and a half million dollars or more to do it properly. And um, one of my friends who wanted to invest in it so decided he didn't want to do it. Um, too risky as far as with the economy, because um, those were the years that just after 2008, 2009, there's some of the real estate crashes. And uh, so we decided we didn't want to force it. I ended up buying a small bighorn area and, and operated that for a few years now. And this was my last year doing that. I decided that I'd rather just focus on consulting um, specific clients and traveling internationally, maybe do a little bit in Africa just for fun in the summer or spring when there's not much going on, and um, focus on the Asian hunting, the mountain hunting, the Ibex, the Argolis, the, the Marco Polo, which also is an Argali, some of the snow sheep and the Urials, because I just find the hunting over there to be, uh, how do I say it, better? Then it's not say better, but you're not you don't you're not competing with all the resident hunters anywhere you outfit in Canada or Alaska, or the lower 48. You're competing with residents, um, and juggling you're 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 juggling the resources, and you're dealing with you know public comments and whether it's wolves or burns or logging, um, there's always something. And over there, you know the the, the hunting departments charge a lot of money for the licenses, so they make a lot of money. And in general, the public general public doesn't hunt very much, so you're not competing with resident hunters, and you don't have as many trees over there, and you don't have... Uh... At GoHunt.com, we are restoring the heritage of the old and constantly redefining the new. We stay focused and put our efforts into redefining the future of Western hunting. What makes us special? What makes us different? We 
are the new breed of hunter. We are the customers that we serve. We are the innovators, and we are the future. Visit GoHunt.com slash insider and join the movement. Use the J. Scott promo code when signing up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at PhoneScope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at PhoneScope. You know, you don't have as much urban sprawl um, in the hunting areas, so you tend to have wilder, better, I'm going to say it's wilder than the Brooks Range or Alaska or the Northwest Territories or the Northern Yukon, that's pretty darn wild. Um, but, you know, we, I can offer hunts on a lot of different continents, uh, or at least one main continent, which is Central Asia and Russia, um, in a lot of different countries, and not have to personally be on every single hunt and not have to personally organize every guide and every horse and all that. So I enjoy hunting um, and I enjoy some of the logistics of it. But in Canada, if I left the hunting area, it was lots of times a problem. Or if I went hunting myself, it was a bit of a problem. You know, people would either get jealous or think that I should have been guiding them. And if I'd been guiding them instead of hunting or exploring, that they would have had a better hunt, whatever. And so I honestly, that's probably the biggest reason that I decided not to outfit anymore in Canada is I like I like the flexibility of having some really good partners internationally, but not having to go on every hunt myself and or and guide all the time. So I because I I was known as also the hunting guide and a hunter, not just the outfitter. And so I worked myself into a role where I was guiding every hunt and also organizing the operation and getting a bit burned out and um, and again not being able to hunt myself that much. So I was flipping a hunt here or there, but really my passion was exploring. I, as far as hunting goes, if you said you can just go hunting whitetails and sit in a tree stand, I probably wouldn't be that much of a hunter. I prefer the, the difficult, challenging things of mountain hunting that test all your senses, you know, your physical needs, your mental, um, your navigation, your spotting, your glassing, your survival skills, your equipment, everything really that, that you need as a, as, a, as a hunter is tested there. Um, I tell people when they hunt Asia that if they don't know what their weakness is, we'll find it because between the travel, the culture differences, the food, the high altitude, the cold weather, the long range shooting, everything involved, you will, you will find your weakness. And um, that's what I like about it. I guess I like, I like things that are a little bit hard. It's not necessarily the best money when it's that difficult and hard. Um, but what I do like is that the success rate is high. And that if a guy hunts in Asia, you're going to probably shoot an animal or at least get an opportunity at it. I've had hunts on bighorns and other species where if it's more weather dependent, if you don't have a migration, if you don't have the rut coming on, moose calling or whatever, and there's black timber, uh, the berries are bad, so the berries don't come out. You know, you're just pulling your hair out hunting. You're just sitting there basically waiting for something to happen. You can't go make things happen. And the thing I like about the Asian hunting is the harder you work, the luckier you get. And if you keep looking over the next hill and keep going, you'll be successful. And that's probably why I like it as much as anything. Um, 
that's not necessarily the best business model when you have a lot of risk hunting internationally. But so far, um, I would say that things have gone fairly well. Uh, there's problems anywhere you go uh, with hunting because you're taking a person who's out of his element a lot of time um, that can afford these hunts, and you're trying to make him feel comfortable and make him successful. Well, sometimes you have female hunters too, but most of my clients are 97, 8% men, and uh, and they typically don't spend enough time behind their gun. Uh, they don't spend enough time hiking and training, and so when they get there, they're not always prepared for the kind of hunts that we offer. And so you're trying to take somebody who's really not quite really not quite able to do it properly and trying to get them a success and get them a nice animal and, and, and make it where it's still safe for them. So that is always a bit of a challenge. It's kind of like taking some guy that has bad vision and Parkinson's disease and putting them in an Indianapolis 500 car or a Formula One car and having them go around the track and not crash. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, you have your own set of challenges. Uh, most of the clients I have are actually quite good hunters. Um, but there's some guys that, you know, started hunting too late in life or maybe have some health issues or just physically don't have the time to train and, you know, they're in over their head sometimes. So we try and match hunters uh, to the best hunt for them. There's easy hunts and there's hard hunts and there's hunts I just don't send certain people on because it would be not fun for them. And I don't want somebody to have a bad time um, if I know it's not going to be a good fit. So anyway, there's a long-winded um, you know, description of why I do what I do and what I do. But uh, anyway, hopefully that makes some sense. Absolutely. And a question I would have is, do you respect the hunter that's calling to book a hunt with you? Do you respect a hunter more that automatically tells you up front where his weaknesses are so that you could then, as the outfitter, place him in the best scenario possible? Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, when booking the hunt, uh, how important it is to be real honest with your outfitter? Well, it's always important to be honest because, um, for example, I used to deal, when I first started in, in Alpha in Canada, I always said I would never take a southern hunter, which is somebody from Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, whatever, that grew up just hunting um, you know, whitetails and hogs and never had been outside of that area um, and never hunted a, a mountain-type hunt. I didn't want to be the first guy to take them because they're used to a certain type of a hunt or they've hunted Africa, but they've never hunted a mountain state or, or a province like British Columbia. Those are the type of guys that if I took them on a hunt, unless I had a cabin and a boat to hunt from, I knew that those guys were going to be a little bit overwhelmed and they could be more likely to say, hey, this is too hard. I didn't sign up for this. Um, so I typically would really screen the clients and I'd rather turn down a hunter or tell them, hey, you need to go hunt here. You need to go hunt here first before you come this. The nice thing about Asia and, you know, you can also include Eastern Europe and parts of Europe like Spain and, you know, Croatia and Romania. They all have good hunting. Also, Hungary, um, Turkey uh, is we can pick and choose. I mean, there's Ibex hunts in Mongolia. If you can walk and use a toilet, you can probably shoot an Ibex. There's hunts in Kyrgyzstan that unless you're a mountaineering type person and can backpack with a 50 or 60 pound pack on at 13,000 feet, you can't do them. So we do have a wide range of hunting opportunities we can put people on. So if a guy is honest with me, and, and I know how to ask the right questions typically now, what they're capable of. The biggest thing, too, is shooting. I mean, if a guy can hike decently but he can't shoot, it's no good. I'd rather have a guy who can hike so-so and shoot really well um, unless you know he wants the guy to shoot the animals for him, and that's usually not how hunting should be. It should be, you know, as a guide, I mean, I'll try and if a hunter moves an animal, 
and physically can't get to it or scopes himself or something. I've had to finish a couple animals in my life, but I don't make a habit of shooting clients' animals. And most clients don't want you to shoot their animals. Um, so that means that they have to be able to shoot. And, you know, we don't deal with a lot of bow hunters internationally for that reason because it's not, uh, some places not even legal to hunt with a bow, but it's generally fairly difficult. Long range shooting, open shooting, um, two, 300 yards is a, what I call an easy shot. That's a close shot. Uh, and in North America, I would say when we hunted in British Columbia and my trips to Alaska, that I was worried more about a hunter's physical ability and not so much about their shooting ability. You know, I only got within 200 yards or 300 yards is a long shot. In Asia, I worry more about their shooting ability uh, in addition to their physical ability. So I, I would take the opposite. In, in North America, I would take fit and medium shooting. In Asia, I would take medium fitness and good shooting um, because the shooting, for example, I think on my Marco Polo hunts, I've guided personally, been there with local guides and the hunters on, say, 27 or 28 Marco Polo and probably 20, 25 Ibex. And of those, I probably have had another hunter's miss, another 25, 26 Marco Polo right in front of me um, and probably another 10 Ibex. So I have what, seen What would you a lot say, Brian? I'm sorry to interrupt, but what would you say in missing those Marco Polo is the biggest factor? Is it distance? Is it not being able to shoot quickly? Is it, you know... Um, All the above. Uh, you, sometimes you need to make long-range shots quickly and in a rest position that you're not used to. A lot of hunters are not used to shooting prone, laying on the ground or over a pack. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service, and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camo patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at Utah Hydrographics. And um, I've had a couple times when the hunters try to shoot really low to the ground because they didn't have a bipod and they laid their gun on, on their, their uh, part of their pack or their jacket. And I was filming um, and I couldn't really watch what happened. Or I've had times when the animal moved and they repositioned their gun and they ended up shooting a stone, like literally a small stone or um, the top of a flat rock or, the, or a snow drift in front of their barrel. I can think of at least four different times, maybe five where the hunters actually hit something with their bullet between one and four feet in front of their barrel and ricocheted off and didn't hit the animal. And those were all animals that were probably dead animals. They were fairly close animals. In fact, every one, the hunter was actually always a good shot. It was never a bad hunter that did that. Um, it was always a good hunter that just got careless. And you're tired, you're, you're hunting at high altitude, your mind doesn't work as well. Not only does your body not work as well because it's oxygen deprived, your mind is oxygen deprived. And, you know, I've, I've just seen it where hunters have just made mistakes they wouldn't make at normal elevations because they're tired. And usually it's later in the day um, and trying to rush a shot and too, too easy, too good to be true. And yeah, it was. Um, 
So there's a lot of reasons why guys miss, but I would say spooky animals that don't hang around very long. And when you stick your head over the hill, you better be shooting. Um, and guys just not experienced. When, when, you, when you shoot a rifle at 100 yards or 200 yards, you can do a lot of things wrong and hit the animal. If you, once you start shooting over 400 or 500 yards and you have some guys will camp the gun, some guys will adjust for wind drift, some guys will outguess their turret or outguess their reticle and hold the wrong line or hold higher than they should. Another problem I see with guys that shoot reticle scopes with a second focal plane, and that means when you shoot a second focal plane scope, you have to have the reticle typically on the highest power or predetermined power for the gaps on the lines to stay the same as what you, the calculations tell you. So if you're shooting at a 20 power scope on 10 power on a second focal plane scope, your line gap will double. So if, say, the one line corrected for a 6-inch bullet drop and you put on 10 power, it'll correct for a 12-inch bullet drop now. And so guys overshoot the animal. So shooting an animal at low light on a high-power scope, they have to turn the scope down to find the animal and to see it pick him out in the group. And then if they forget to turn the power back up to 10, 12 power, I mean at 12 or like 20 power, um, they will shoot wrong. They will overshoot the animal. They will shoot high. And so that's something that's happened. And I mean, I don't always know what happens when I'm not on the hunts because I always hear different stories. But every year we have probably 40 to 60% miss rate um, in Asia. So maybe not in Spain, maybe not in some of the other hunts, but on specifically Marco Polo and Ibex in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan is probably the highest amounts of missing that uh, I hear of. And also the highest amounts of, you know, <laughs> an animal there, once you shoot, the second shot opportunity is very small. I mean, if you shoot a, a moose or even a stone sheep or bighorn, Typically, if you hit him or don't hit him, uh, he will give you some type of a second or third shot to fix the error that you had. Or if you, you know, you know, you just had a bad shot and maybe it was pulled the trigger and it was a human error, whatever. Most misses are human error in general. But it gives you the opportunity to get that second or third shot. And if you miss a Marco Polar Ibex, they're usually running like their ass is on fire. And um, it's like a grenade went off. And so... Uh, they, it's very hard to get follow-up shots on some of these animals at reasonable ranges, and that's a real key is uh, not being able to hit them um, after the first shot. You can't do an instant correction and hit them like you would on lots of North American animals. And I find that it's a little bit like an antelope. I mean, people that hunt an antelope, and they have a high high hunting, um, lots of hunting pressure. They're pretty spooky. So if you miss one, instantly as soon as you shoot, they're off on a dead run. And, and so that's the way that these animals are, except then they don't really stop as quickly as the antelope and you just can't go find them again sometimes. I mean, lots of times you'll never see that animal again. So anyway, in, in a, a long-winded way, that's the shooting is extremely important in Asia and everybody that hunts there uh, should consider taking one or more long-range shooting type skills courses where they learn the fundamentals of, of shooting and follow-up shots and position behind the rifle and canting the gun and trigger control and, and everything. And, and honestly, most guys that think they're pretty good shots all could have improvement because you, even myself, I go, I consider myself a fairly good shooter, but when I go and take a shooting school, they'll pick out things that I kind of know that I'm doing, but they really say, Hey, you need to not do this. Brian. For me, like I punch the trigger sometimes because I'm used to sometimes shooting birds or animals that are walking. Uh, and so you get used to, you know, I'm also used to getting another shot in really quick for a quick follow-up shot. And so sometimes you rush your first shot. It doesn't usually cause me to miss, but I could shoot better if I don't punch the trigger. And um, so same thing with hunters. Everybody has something. It's 
that they can work on and make themselves a better shot. Because in the heat of the moment, when you know the shit hits the fan, so to speak, that's when your lack of experience and your lack of practice and your lack of confidence in your hunt, hunting uh, tool um, and your optics come, and you really notice it. You know, it's easy when you're at the range and we got a lot of time, but when everything is happening right now, you can really see quickly the guys that have the experience and the guys that don't. Yeah, that's all awesome stuff right there. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I've got some follow-up questions for you. Okay, thank you. Tired of relying on out-of-date numbers, spending too much on hunting consultants and seeing too little results? With Go Hunt Insider, the old way of doing things is over. With the introduction of draw odds and filtering 2.0, you'll have access to the most accurate, up-to-date information in the industry. You can filter by state, species, trophy potential, weapon, specific days or months of the year, harvest success rate, male-to-female ratios, and much more. All of this leads to easily finding the best hunt for you. So what are you waiting for? Visit GoHunt.com Insider and join the movement. Okay, Brian, a couple things that I want to bounce back that you were talking about. One is you're saying the animals in Asia are very, very spooky with with. I think I heard you say light hunting pressure. Are the animals just automatically spooky? Because Why are they so spooky? They're more spooky for several reasons. The first reason is they don't have timber and things to run into. So their natural inclination to get away is, is distance. Distance and cliffs, which means speed and running as fast as you can. So you're going to have a lot of times when the only way for the animal to avoid a further problem is um, running. Um, and and they get poached sometimes. I mean, local local farmers and local poachers and herdsmen will sometimes shoot at them with 22s and shotguns. So, uh, you know, they do a lot of missing, <laughs> not so much shooting. But that does not help the animal's psyche. So when they're getting shot at, um, you know, by these kind of situations, it's... Uh, now, of course, the animals are going to be pretty, uh, you know, haywire and, and pretty scared. And they have oh. a lot of predators like wolves. Wolves are very hard on the animals there. Uh, wolves are the, probably the biggest predator I see. I've seen them kill the animals before. I've seen them chase them several times, but I've actually watched the wolves kill the animals. And uh, they are very good killers. They tend to work in big packs, um, usually groups of five or six. And uh, they run, start running the animals. And in and, and the big snow, what will happen is one of the lead animals will, um, you know, it'll break through the snow and then a smaller animal will try and take another path and you know, break, it'll break through the snow and the wolf just catches them as soon as they break through the snow and they'll fall down and the wolf's right on their ass and catch them. So, yeah, it's a combination of things. Predators, their environment, and, and the poaching. So they're, they're, definitely, they're definitely humans that have hunted these animals for years and uh, they understand humans are not your friend. I want to ask you about uh, your preference, whether a guy uses a ballistic reticle or a turret, if if you had to choose, what is your favorite and why? Pretty easy answer, actually. Uh, in general, unless the guy has a lot of trigger time on his rifle, I prefer a turret um, over a reticle. And the reason I say that is two reasons. A turret can be shot in any power. If you have a 5 to 20 power scope or a 3 to 18 scope, you can shoot it on 3-power, 6-power, 20-power, 18-power. And in theory, I mean, maybe there's some variations between scopes so they're not perfectly the same on every power. The, the reticle sh- 
should be on the same point of impact on any power. And, and also, what happens is, um, it's you can when you get to when I, when, when I go hunting to an area uh, that I haven't been before, I spend a lot of time shooting my gun, or that if I'm borrowing a gun, I shoot it. And my philosophy is, I'd rather shoot 15 times at the target and one time at the animal instead of 15 times at the animal and one time at the target. So I always the reticle is very easy to fine tune and adjust depending on how it is. You can make notes or whatever, but most of the time if you have a gun that's proven, let's say you buy a gun from the best of the West or Gunworks or some of these other companies that gives the pro, that give you the gun with the ammunition and the ballistics and everything, they're pretty accurate. I mean, so if you have a good rangefinder, uh, you can do very well. And what you can do is you can take, if it's off a little bit, you can zero your gun for, say, 400 yards, and it might be off a little bit at 300 or 200, but not much. So you even the program is off a little bit because of elevation or velocity or something, you can fine-tune it so out to 500 yards is pretty consistent. And the other thing with a reticle, uh, I mean, with a turret scope, your eye is focused on the center of the scope all the time. And so when an animal, say, is walking or you're trying to adjust for wind drift, I like a reticle. Um, that has not many, basically probably doesn't have horizontal lines, I mean, doesn't have the horizontal lines, or if it does, you can use them. I do like the lines for range finding if your range finder quits. So having your scope that has some kind of a reticle in it, like the art reticle that Holland sells or Swarovski sells, uh, their um, uh, BRX or BR reticle, um, BRH reticle, and you understand the gap there, you can actually... In a pinch, you can use that to range find. So that's the advantage of a reticle. But I prefer, honestly, for most hunters to have a crosshair with MOA lines. So basically, one MOA is one inch at 100 yards, or five inches at 500 yards. So they have one MOA lines on each side of the crosshair. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance product formulations. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order in January 2016. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, Antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. So they can quickly crack for wind drift. So I like to dial for elevation, and I like to, to hold for wind, hold into the wind, you know, one MOA, yeah. two MOA, and, and you understand, you know, and people should understand what an MOA is and also what, how many inches it is. So, you know, if, if somebody says, hey, you're 10 inches right, you're 10 inches left, and it's 500 yards, you know, you would hold the second line. Uh, if it's a, if it's one MOA increments, because each MOA is five inches, so two lines is 10 inches. So that's what I like. The problem with the reticle scope is if it's on a second focal plane scope, and a lot of people like shooting a high power scope, they like shooting scopes that are 20 power on the upper end or 22 or 24 power. Well, that's all fine and dandy when you're shooting at long range and bright light and only one or two animals. But when you're shooting at a group of animals that are together and you got to pick them out, and if they spook, they run, they run out of your scope, so you can't find them again quickly. So I, for that reason, 
Uh, I don't like shooting a lot of times on 20 power, 25 powered animals. I'm very big proponent of shooting animals at 10 or 12 power, especially if they're in a group where you might have to do a follow-up shot. And um, otherwise, the guy's spending all this time behind the scope trying to find them, turning the power down to find them, and then turning it back up to hold the reticle again because if they shoot on the low power, they're going to overshoot the animal. Or if you have a 20 power scope, know what the gap is on 10 power. So half power will give you double the gap. And so if you're correcting, again, like I said, the 10-inch hold, now you've got a 20-inch hold if you're shooting on 10 power. So the other thing is you go with the first focal plane scope with a turret and the reticle, and then you got kind of the best of both worlds, but it can be a little more complicated. So now first focal plane doesn't matter if you have the scope on 3 power, 5 power, 20 power, 30 power. It's the same gap. But the lines on high power will be thick, and on low power they'll be very fine and thin. So for that system, it's more of a European system. It's what a lot of the, the old Swarovskis, some of the, uh, all the Schmitt, most of the Schmidt and Benders, um, you know, those kind of scopes, probably the Hensold scopes would be the same, which is a tactical scope. They would be first focal plane. Leopold makes first focal plane and second focal plane scopes. So you can, so the first focal plane is actually a really good way to go. And um, in my opinion, but again, it's hard to find scopes that are made in first focal plane for hunting. Unfortunately, in the U.S., most people want second focal plane. So, anyway, pros and cons. I would go with the turret. You know, the biggest thing with the turret is you have to you need a zero stop turret. So when you crank it back down, you don't reverse it and go the other way too far. So you you need some type of thing where you, when you back it back down to zero, it stops. It maybe goes a couple clicks past zero, and then you can bring it back to zero. So the main thing is when you shoot is reset your scope to zero before you pick up your gun and go moving. Because I've seen guys, they leave it on 500 yards, and they go up to the animal, and 200 yards, the animal jumps up, and they didn't hit it very well, and now they're overshooting it. They're shooting way where it's back because they have 20 inches of bullet drift correction. Uh, I mean, a, a bullet uh, drop, and so now they're shooting over it. Um, so you have to always think, turn it down. But definitely the line, and the more lines you have in the scope, and the further range you're shooting with the lines, the more likely you are to shoot the wrong line. So because you got to go, okay, dot line, dot line, dot line, dot line, and most of them aren't, aren't labeled or numbered. So you're having a count in the heat of the moment. And again, if you're trying to correct correct for wind drift, it's very hard to estimate wind drift when you're down on the bottom line or if the animal's walking a little bit, um, you're following them. I just find that in general, people shoot better. Uh, they, they shoot a turret scope more accurately um, and they don't need as much time behind the gun. Because I can take a new gun, a new guy who's never shot before, I can set the scope on 10 power. I can set the parallax for him. I can turn it to 450 yards. I can put it down, say, get behind. I said, hold perfectly on that spot on the guy's shoulder. And he can do it. He doesn't have. He doesn't know what the wind is doing. He doesn't know what the, um, um, the the bullet is dropping. He just listens to my directions and he'll make that shot. Where if he's trying to shoot the lines, I find that they always a lot of times guys second guess, and and they they can't concentrate on what what they were told or what they know to be true because they just can't believe that that would be much that much bullet drop at that range. And so that's why I like the turrets. So, and you can go either custom turret, which calculates for all the, the, the bullets conditions in, the, in that environment and the, and the wind drift. It tells you the wind drift numbers, everything. And, or you can get an MOA turret and print out a program and tape it to your stock or have it in your pocket and just click the MOAs. Either one works. The easiest way is to have a custom turret designed for that gun, for that load, for that elevation and temperature. And but then you have to have a couple of them if you hunt 15,000 feet or sea level. Um, 
or you change from a Barnes bullet to a Burger bullet or something like that, you're going to have to change your turrets. So you're going to have to have several of them made. But that's probably the, the most dummy-proof, simple way to do it. And again, companies like Best of the West, which has a Husqvarna scope, you know, Swarovski makes those now, uh, like the outdoors and those makes turrets for them. I know that in the Night Force system, you know, with Gunworks, they also do the same thing. Um, those are three companies that do them. There's, you know, Leopold, you can have a, the, the custom bullet drop uh, made from, from their scopes too. So more and more people are doing it. I'm sure probably Vortex is doing the same thing too. I don't keep up with every single scope company, but I know that those, the most common ones we see are Huskama, Shirovsky, Leopold, and, um, and, and, and probably Night Force, those four. Although we do see a little bit of everything, but those are the four most common ones that we see. What do you shoot on your personal guns? Just last year, I hunted with the Best of the West system. Um, uh, I've shot a lot of Schmidt and Benders with Daryl Holland. I've shot several good Leopold systems. I shot Swarovski. I mean, if I had one optics company to go with and I could only use one company, I would probably stick with Swarovski. Um, for the money, um, the Husqvarna system it, it works excellent. It doesn't have the, the light gathering maybe or the absolute Christmas of a Z6 Swarovski, but it's less than half the price. And I, you know, I mean, Leopold VX3s always work. I have a VX7. A couple of my guides and friends have the Mark, what they call it, the Mark 1s or the Mark 4s, um, which is a tactical scope and that works well. So I, again, I, I tell people at the end of the day, as long as your equipment is reliable and you know it, I way worry, more worry about the guy behind the gun than the gun itself. Um, I'd rather have a guy with a factory gun that costs $800 and a really good optic and a good custom load for it than a guy with a perfectly perfect high-end $4,000 custom gun and factory loads and, a, and, a, and he doesn't know how to shoot it. So, I mean, again, I worry about the guy behind the gun more than the gun. If the guy behind the gun is not capable, you could give him a Ferrari and he's gonna not, still not going to win a race and a guy in a smart car might outdrive him. So, you know... There's a saying, beware of the guy with one gun. Well, you don't necessarily have to have one gun, but you need to know your gun. You need to know what it's doing. And if you too many guys buy a gun and take it on a hunt, and they think it's, well, this is a thousand-yard gun, well, it's a thousand-yard gun in the right guy's hands. And for hunting situations, very, very few people are thousand-yard shooters, for especially in the wind and shooting across mountains. I think, for me, what I've seen, if you can master shooting six to 700 yards, if you can master first shot hits at that range, those three and 400 yard shots that you normally make are, I, I hate to say it, but almost a chip shot. Um, but trying, once you start shooting at a thousand yards, especially in wind, and especially across two or three ridges and canyons where you have two different wind, or maybe even three, vor three different wind vortexes with up, up currents and down currents and side, you'll, you'll see really quickly why trying to shoot an animal at a thousand yards in the mountains is very, very difficult and why most guys can't do it. Um, and maybe if you're shooting in Australia on the flats or in Wyoming in the antelope, and you can read the wind, and it's very consistent from point A to point Z. But when you've got three different winds, you know, along the route, um, you have to basically do multiple corrections and, at, at the same time and pull off a shot quickly, and that's why most guys can't do it. So realistically for hunting, for mountain hunting, six, 700 yards, if you can shoot really well at that range, um, and hopefully you don't have to shoot game at that range, I, again, I like guys to shoot between 200 and 500 is kind of my where I like Asian hunting to be done. Once you get more than 500 yards, uh, you have a lot of stuff that goes wrong, even more than 450. Um, 600, 650, 
is much more difficult than say 500. And again, once you get over seven, 750, um, and pushing the thousand yard range, it's everything goes, everything changes. Um, there's more stuff that goes on between seven and 800 yards, or seven, eight, 700 yards and 900 yards, than there are between say 200 and 700. Um, so practice is, is essential and knowing your limitations because there's guys that can make 700 yard shots easily and there's guys that can barely make a 300 yard shot. So when you're shooting long range, one of the biggest problems I see with shooters is improper trigger control, improper recoil management. They don't, you got to hold the gun the same way you do at the range. So if you're shooting off a bench at the range, or you're shooting off your pack at the field, you need to, um, you need to uh, really practice and uh, practice the same kind of hunting shots that you will be doing. Um, just a second. Yeah, um, you need to be doing the same type of uh, shooting form, um, not just on the bench. And that's a huge thing, is, uh, and I call that recoil management. And that's why heavy guns shoot better, because if you're not holding the gun quite right, you're not holding the same position, that bigger gun, when it recoils, especially if you have a muzzle brake on it, will be more consistent. The lighter the gun, the more the, the more powder it has, the faster the bullet's going down it, you just miss bigger. So too many people shoot big guns that are light because they don't like packing a light, they don't want to pack a heavy gun on the mountains, but that heavy gun's going to miss a lot less. So, I mean, light with big recoil is a bad combination. You can't, you can't stay on target and so your second shot or third shot is never going to hit. Um, you, you won't be able to find the animal uh, in time. So that definitely the weight of the gun and what I call recoil management is key. Controlling that gun so when you shoot it that it shoots the same every time because if you shoot it at the range and the gun is not jumping but you're shooting it in the field and the, and the gun is slipping underneath your shoulder and the barrel is coming up off the ground more, um, it's going to hit high. And if the gun, when you shoot, if it recoils to the right because your body position is too far to the left and the gun wants to recoil to the right, well, that when it, when you shoot, that gun bullet's going to hit to the right also, and that's a really a big issue with people. Also, I see a lot of guys camp their guns. Uh, they're shooting, laying on a hillside, shooting an animal on a hillside. They'll camp at five, ten degrees, not even thinking they're doing it. So you need to have a level on the scope or on one of your mounts. Uh, like, and like, there's a new product called the angle cosine indicator that has a flip out level, like a little ball bearing level, which is really really slick. Or you can get different companies like Daryl Holland makes them. You know, the best of West Gunworks, all these companies will sell Sinclair. You can buy stuff from Sinclair that, that mounts to your scope and will tell you if your gun's canted right or left. And that's really, really consistently important to have proper level every shot. If it's not, the further you go, the more that the, it exaggerates the bullet's flight and the more it hits right to the left, right or left, depending on how you're canting your gun. So very, very critical holding the gun consistently and, and a good trigger pull. And having a really good trigger on your gun, you can take a factory gun and get it adjusted for two and a half or three pounds of the crisp trigger and get the gun bedded properly so the stock mold is consistent. And you can get a lot of guys shooting factory guns way under sub-MOA um, with a good scope and for 500-yard guns all day long. I mean, I, I really believe if you're a serious hunter, you should probably at some point buy a custom gun if you can afford it because you can make it perfectly for you. Um, but it's not absolutely necessary. I think the scope is more important than the rifle, personally, as long as the rifle is reliable and consistent. Thanks for listening to the J. Scott Outdoors Western Big Game Hunting and Fishing Podcast brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Use the promo code JSCOTT and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card when signing up for the GoHunt.com Insider. 
research faster, hunt more, go to gohunt.com insider and join today.